Mark Wales is a former Special Ops Commander whose dream career became a nightmare in a cornfield in Afghanistan where he saw his mentor gunned down and learned the true meaning of resilience. But Australia knows him best from his time as a contestant on the show Survivor. Mark, the tribe's spoken. Indeed. Time for you to go. Mark's appearance on a reality show was all part of his mission to rebuild himself after the SAS. Today, he shares how to find the confidence to turn your life around, the power of reinvention, and how to go about gaining new meaning in your life. They call it moral injury. I think that's the, the more recent term for it, but it is it's so uh, disconcerting to have your values torn up like that. And I think that's what war does. It's degrading for everyone. Mark and I had this chat just after his regional Victorian home with his wife, fellow survivor Samantha Gash, was severely damaged by a wild storm. I reckon it says so much about him that he remained committed to doing this interview, even though they were camping out at a friend's house and dealing with that natural oh, yeah. disaster yeah, sure. with their young son. Come here, monkey. Come here. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> I've just been running around. <laughs> I'm Katrina Blowers, and this is Claiming Your Confidence. Oh, he's such a rat bag. This is such a treat to talk to you. I absolutely loved your book. Great. No, thanks. I uh, hope, you, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> Sammy in the background. Hey. <laughs> there is Sammy. Are you after the keys? That is keys. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm great. It's so lovely to see you. <laughs> oh, it's so nice to see you. Sorry, we look a little worse for wear. We look, we look storm affected. <laughs> you guys are honestly amazing doing everything you're doing with all that going on right now. Oh, no, I'm sure you're all kind of hearing a bit of it from the news side of things. So it's, yeah. It's not great, but, um, you know, we're physically safe. Can't so complain. That's, we can't yeah. complain. Yeah. Gosh, glass half full people. Well, I won't monopolise you because I could talk to you all day long. We'll, so I'll leave We'll, have, we'll yes. have to do a proper catch up. Yeah. Then, yeah, yes, we'll I will, I will come down your way sometime. Yeah. Um, I would love that. Yeah. Lovely to see you. (laughs) Well, do you know one of the things that I did not obviously know about you was that you you were one of those people who, from when you were little, you had this calling. You knew what you wanted to do. You, You said, you know, as a kid, I decided my mission in life would be to join the Australian SAS. Um, you wanted to rescue people in need. You then studied battles and wars as a history undergrad. Um, you kind of thought you knew what you were getting yourself into, but the reality of it was pretty different. Yeah, I did. I, I knew as a young kid that I wanted to do that. And I think I was pretty lucky to find something I was. Uh, I really felt drawn to as a kid. Uh, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought, you know, this this could be a tough career, depending on if we get involved in fighting or whatnot. And um, I always knew if I was confronted by something like that, it would be hard. And I was right. It was it was such a shocking thing. I don't think anything can prepare you for it. How was it then reliving it all by writing your book? Yeah, I was, I was in a cold sweat for a few parts of it. I, th- I think there are certain bits I just wanted to, I, I'd be happy to lock them in a box and just bury them and never deal with it again. 
Um, but at the same time, they're also the most important parts of the story. So the, the times I was involved in close combat or fatalities of Australian soldiers that I knew, in some ways I wanted people to know about those soldiers because they don't have the chance to tell their side of the story. And I, I didn't want them to be a footnote. Um, I wanted them to be real people, characters that you could see and relate to. And that was important for me to bring some of these guys back to life. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful a beautiful thing to do and a beautiful tribute to them and I'm sure their families are really grateful for that as well. Yeah, I was nervous about th- what the families would think, but they were incredibly supportive. They were really good about it. Yeah. So let's go back to, you know, the, the training that you had to do. You know, they always say that they, they break you down to build you back <laughs> up again. Um, and I'm imagining SAS selection would be at a whole other level. Uh, was it was it what you thought it would be? Uh, yeah, it was tough. I, they, they kind of already break you down a bit when you join the military. They take away some of your old identity and give you a new set of values. And when you go to to SAS selection. It's like an adult's version of that. It's like you've already got a set of values, but we're now going to make you uh, push through the worst type of discomfort, the worst type of psychological um, pain and fear and discomfort that you can experience. And it's up to you to do it. They never shout at you. They never tell you to go and do something that's that you don't want to do. It's, it's entirely up to you. So that pain is, is self-inflicted. And that's the hardest bit is that kind of willpower to to keep doing it and keep coming back for more. So what's the reward? <laughs> Why do you do it? <laughs> I, I think I think the reward is that you know on the other side what's waiting for you is a is an incredible career where you're going to do the best jobs and be with the best teams and do things that are going to really stretch. I felt I knew they were going to stretch me beyond kind of what I was capable of doing and that's I wanted to find that that limit I think. Yeah. You went to Afghanistan. What you have four tours to Afghanistan between 2006 and 2010, and you're in charge of a team of 30 elite soldiers. Now, Mm. I'm imagining this is a group of alpha males and that you (laughs) as their leader, you'd have to step it up to a whole other level. And, And given that we are talking about confidence, where did you dig deep to find that leadership? Yeah, it was. It, it's a hard position because I was 26 years old, and my team, a lot of my team, were older than me. My my team leaders were certainly older than me and more experienced. But I think I had, I guess, enough confidence to know that the process that I'd been through to arrive at that point was pretty robust, and I wouldn't have gotten there if I didn't have some degree of capability and was was good enough to lead the team. So. For me, it was saying, you know, you can, you are actually trained for this, you can do it. And also utilizing a team, uh, working for them so that they would reciprocate and say, well, he's, he's interested in helping us as a team. It's not about, he's done it for himself. So we'll reciprocate with help. And that's how you get a good team. Yeah, yeah. And I'm imagining those one-on-one relationships would, like building that foundation would be essential, I'm imagining. Yeah, you do have to earn trust with people. And I think the great thing about that unit is the standard of the selection that you go through. Uh, people know kind of what you come out as. So there's that kind of known quantity of each person. They know you, you've all been tested and pushed and the product that comes out is a strong uh, you know, person who's who's got the skills. So that helps quite a lot. But, um, I mean, you don't always have that in everyday life. No, absolutely not. And, um, and 
when you talk about everyday life, like this is this is an extraordinary circumstance that you were in, um, those those missions that you went on and some of those harrowing experiences that you write about in the book. One of them, you know, we were talking before about some of the men who didn't make it back. Um, Sergeant Matthew Locke, that really that really got to me that that chapter um, where you talk about seeing him fatally wounded. And I'll just read this little bit. You said We stood there in the dust with the sunset behind us, 30 bearded men and a dog, and stared at the boots Matthew had recently worn. To hear a battle-hardened soldier openly proclaim his love for a mate was heart-wrenching. You talk about how some of those experiences in combat hardened you, and I guess they had to in order for you to get going. How did you go about undoing that hardening and softening again as as you would need to do to get back to Australian life yeah I actually I couldn't I couldn't unravel it for many years because I knew we had to keep going back and so you had to keep some of that some of that hardening I guess to human suffering it was so so opposed to how I'd been raised my my mum taught me you know look after people be good to people and then you're at, at war, really, and you've got to ignore people's pain. Like you're in, we're in Afghan compounds, uh, women and children ter- terrified of us, um, males terrified of us, and you have to ignore that in order to survive. And it's very, it's really dislocating. You, you come back from that. It's they call it moral injury. I think that's the, the more recent term for it. But it is, it's so uh, disconcerting to have your values torn up like that. And I think that's what war does. It's degrading for, for everyone. And it had a lasting impact on me. I don't think I actually uh, returned back to normality until after I'd, I'd left the military and spent a couple of years studying. That was kind of when I started to feel like a, a normal citizen again. Yeah, and I'm imagining, you know, you you come back in between those tours to Afghanistan and you're, you're at family barbecues and people are wanting to have chats with you about things over there. You'd have to kind of water those conversations down a little. It would have been really bizarre. It was bizarre because if you're sending your soldiers away to a war and the rest of society doesn't know about it or understand it, then something's wrong with that picture. Yeah. Um, it, pro- it probably means it's not in your national interest to be there necessarily. So, I mean, it's a whole separate issue, but when you're coming home and no one knows what, what you're doing or what's going on, again, that's another thing that's it's even more isolating. You say, well, I don't want to have, I don't want anything to do with these people. I've got no time for them. And I've kind of felt that way for years. It's, It's quite sad. Yeah. I'd love to chat with you now about, um, some of those moments that you had when you, after you left, well, first of all, let's talk about how you made the decision to leave the military. Was that a tough one? It actually wasn't, it wasn't that hard. I think, I'd been away so much. I went to Canberra in a training role for, I think, a year or two, and I started to realise how burned out I was. And I got a phone call asking from an SAS officer asking if I wanted to go back and uh, do more work at the unit. And I I had no interest. I just had no interest. And that was a clear warning sign to me. This this place was, was really a childhood dream to me. I wanted nothing more to do with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, and that was, I can remember filling out my first application to join an MBA in the US. And I remember thinking it's such a big step to throw away an entire career and, and leave. But I thought it was the right time. 
But how did you even come up with an MBA as a thing to do? Because as you said, this was your big childhood dream. You probably hadn't made much space in your brain for the what next. So where it, how did you kind of, you know, join the dots to a future beyond the military? Yeah, it was kind of another, in some ways it was another childhood dream because I'd always wanted to go to the US and play American football, but I never got the chance to. <laughs> Aim high. <laughs> yeah. I never got the chance to do it and I, I went and visited New York in 2008 and just fell in love with the place. And I uh, thought, you know, if I ever come back and study, I want to come back to here and do it because it's just um, it's an electric place and that's kind of what got me thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. And and after being in a, a career where you had had huge success, albeit it was really gruelling and emotionally taxing, but you had reached such an elite level to then have to sort of start all over again and be a real fish out of water. What did that do to your confidence? Yeah, it was bad because you do, you go from the top of the tree and all of a sudden you realise just how little you know in other fields. And it was a good, for me, it was a good lesson in humility and it was a good lesson in um, <laughs> how, how to learn, like learning how to learn. And I think that is an important skill if you figure out a way that you can learn best about a new topic no matter what it is you can use that and apply it to any field you know whether you, you want to be a home handyman or a ballet dancer you can use those skills to to do whatever you want so how do you learn best um the way i always look out i always look out for excitement first if i if i can't stop thinking about a particular thing i want to do and i keep researching and looking at it reading about it then i know it's it's something that's, that I've got to kind of go in that path for a bit. And that happened with the MBA. I kept thinking about it and researching and buying books. And um, the more I read, the more interested I was. And so that's always a, a kind of warning sign for me I look out for. That's so cool. That's like um, completely different, but there's, um, I do Vedic meditation, right? And in Vedic philosophy, they call that following the charm. So whatever, <laughs> whatever that sort of little thing is that gets in your, you know, and you, you sort of feel a pull towards it. That's, that's actually yeah. what, what they say is like your purpose in life and you need to follow that stuff. Yeah, and I think when we're kids, we do that naturally because there's no other pressures on us. And I think the the takeaway for people who might be listening could be, and I found this, when you're stuck in something that you think you might not want to be in, I think those little voices that kind of call out to you are worth listening to sometimes. If they don't go away, then that could be a path worth exploring. Yeah, yeah. So you have enrolled in this MBA. You've probably still like got a lot of, you know, things that you're dealing with left over from from being, you know, in, in active duty. How how did that process unfold for you and what was it like kind of like were you splitting your time doing some therapy and then immersing yourself in this whole new world? You're kind of looking backwards, looking forwards. How did, how did that unravel for you it was it was super surreal it was like I'd woken up from a, a long dream where I'd been away and all of a sudden I woke up and I was back at school again but um you know now I was 32 I wasn't you know 19 so it was it was super unusual to be back in a, in a new environment like that and I think initially I thought oh you know I'll be fine but after after about six months of being at school I'd kind of just totally relaxed I'd been out partying enjoying myself and hadn't been doing enough schoolwork. And I was on academic probation because my results were terrible. And then I had to like pull it back together again and start studying because I, I was uh, 
you know, I was behind, but I didn't really start. I did some therapy when I was in the military and that helped quite a bit, but I didn't do really good therapy until I'd come out of the military and I went, I actually went back only recently. I did something called it's psychotherapy prolonged exposure. So going back, revisiting the same incident again and again, and it, it kind of, um, and I can't fully explain the science of it. The psychiatrist will be able to do that, but it basically normalized the event for me and gave me a lot of perspective. I did that while I was writing, so I knew it would be it would be hard to go back over it again and not have not have it rattle me quite a bit. Yeah, was the book helpful in that way? Did it help you close off some of that stuff that because you had to go back and revisit it? Yeah, did that actually assist you? I think it gave me some perspective. Yeah, I don't think I'd stopped and actually stepped back from it all and and looked back over the whole piece and realized I think I was a bit easier on myself then. I'm like, actually, I've been through quite a bit. So, of mm-hmm. course, it's going to take a while to readjust. And I think I was a bit more forgiving to myself. But, of course, you, uh, you, you did your MBA, you know, you, you started a, a clothing label. Amazing. <laughs> and then you went on a reality TV show, probably something you never even <sighs> dreamed would be in your future, right, where you met your wife. No, yeah, it's it, you don't, especially in the career I'm in. You definitely don't go on your TV, and so that was a <laughs> such an unusual, you know, such an unusual step. I was pretty worried about, I was sweating a bit over doing it, but um, it, when I started doing it, I, I realized how much fun it was, and it's just a bit of entertainment, really. And I was lucky enough to meet my wife on the show, so that was I was I won the show in the end. <laughs> so good. I'm just trying to think of what you called it, like. Was it short hottie or something? And then, <laughs> then you then you slid into her DMs. You sent her a message <laughs> on social media, and it was like, "Hi, gorgeous." And I'm thinking, "Mark, that's so not smooth." But it clearly worked. <laughs> exactly. Well, we ju- we just had a, th- a three week first date, so I was kind of like, it wasn't um, okay. You know, it was too. It wasn't too bad. <laughs> It wasn't just like a random sliding. Um, no, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> You're listening to Claiming Your Confidence with me, Katrina Blowers, and Survivor and Special Ops Commander Mark Wales. Stay with us because Mark is about to share his number one confidence tip. So getting back to, you know, confidence and you're someone who I suppose the, the, the industries that you have, have excelled in as well as being part of the elite SAS and how you present now, you know, you do public speaking, you're an author, um, you teach about leadership and resilience. You look like the walking epitome of confidence, but I'd love to know, like, what do people not know about you? Like what, what has been a big confidence challenge that you can share with us? I think um, I've definitely had that, always had that doubt about what I, what I could achieve but I think I, the the way I overcame it was just saying, was being a bit more forgiving to myself about failures. So I'm like, all right, I don't think I'm fully capable of this, but I'm going to try it anyway. And I'm expecting to fail a few times along the way. And I think that that kind of having two sides of that one coin, one saying, I think I can do it, but I know it's going to be messy, but doing it anyway, I think that was kind of what my my process for the whole thing. 
Yeah. So I never set expectations of myself that was super high, but I really just kept that end goal in mind. And, and I didn't really care how many failures I had along the way as long as I kept going. Um, and there certainly were tons of failures, which I put in the book. <laughs> Well, you talk about in the book about how it was Sam who actually encouraged you to get out on the speaking circuit and how that wasn't like a a, a natural fit for you to begin with. No. Did you have some disasters in the beginning? Oh, yeah. You just got no idea. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't understand the importance of storytelling and uh, using your, your tone. I had to unlearn all these bad habits about speaking that I picked up in the military where you've got to have a more even and consistent manner because you're in high stress situations. I had to unlearn all that. And um, it was a hard, hard process. And then you're trying to tell jokes and some, none of them land. And then, you know, cause you've got to use a bit of humor <laughs> in your talks. Oh, it's just totally total disaster for a while. Well, if it, if it makes you feel better, Lane Beachley, uh, the ex pro surfer, who's also been a guest on this podcast shared that I think it was, um, the third speech she ever did. It was one of the biggest keynotes she'd ever done very early on. She got booed off the stage. So (laughs) she's now one of the most sought after public speakers in Australia. So there you go. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. But what advice would you give? Because public speaking, I think, is one of those things that that a lot of people struggle with and have to do for their jobs. What, given you do so much of it now and you really, um, you're nailing it now, what, what do you... What do you tell yourself now that I think is different to, I guess, the self-talk that you were giving yourself before? I think the biggest thing is is, is you're not always going to be able to um, present everything exactly the way that you want to, but it's just important to remember you're talking to adults and you should be authentic and you should try and connect with them. I think Australians especially know if they're being fed something that's way too polished and way to rehearse. So for me, I, um, I don't mind if I make a few mistakes. I'll just try and keep it as as honest and authentic as I can. I think that connection really helps with the storytelling and it helps people um, feel what you, the situation you're trying to put them in. I love that. And um, again, it's about um, the post-analysis. I think so many of us just are our worst critics. We beat ourselves up. Uh, I mean, I'm guilty of that, you know, if, if something goes wrong, but you just got to get back up and do it again. Um, I want to um, share a, a little section of your book. It's towards the end where you talk about something that your psychologist tells you. Um, and he's saying when he's reviewing your files, um, you're doing a really great thing. This treatment works and it works because when we avoid things, we leave them unfinished and the only way through is to confront them. We must confront our trauma. So for anyone listening who probably hasn't done what you've done or, or been in a war but who ha- is trying to be brave in the face of um, either something that hasn't gone their way or is having to dig deep to find some resilience and I know that the pandemic has um, triggered a lot of people in a lot of different ways, what would be some tips that you would give people for um, undergoing their own resilience journey or their own confidence come back? I think there's probably two. One is to kind of think about what that um, goal is that you have that's not only a month away, it's something longer term that you're really excited by, whether it's going to a new school or becoming a pastry chef, whatever it is, keep that long goal in mind. And that's having something to kind of swim towards is 
is so important for resilience. I think when you lose that, you lose a lot of hope. Um, so that's one. And then the other one, which is shorter term, is just take good care of yourself. So keep doing the basics well, like diet, exercise, rest, um, connection with family and friends. They're, they're kind of the pillars of, of high performance and the pillars of recovering from from health issues mentally and physically. So it's hard to do them consistently. And I know when I stop doing them, I, I have my own issues with the resilience. So, Is that what you've noticed working with um, like high performance leaders as well, that they have those, those basic building blocks that they check off each day? Yeah, I noticed that. And actually it goes back to when I was doing special forces training. They never showed us anything that we hadn't already been taught as soldiers. They just happened to be really rigorous with how they applied the basics and i think if you can do the basics well that is the foundation to really getting everything else right if you don't do those basics well it's hard to build something on that foundation Um, and so yeah and i take those those same ideas that everyone already knows and i just remind everyone of those when i do public speaking i'm go you already know this i'm not teaching you anything new it's just that you have to be really rigorous and have a lot of willpower to do them consistently do you enjoy public speaking now? Um, I'd say I'm better <laughs> at it than I was at the start. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm an introverted person. I don't um, – I still get in a cold sweat about it sometimes, but it's a good <laughs> – it's a, it's a growth thing and I, I enjoy speaking to companies and, yeah. I'm the same. Like even though the job that I do is public and I have to get up on yeah. stage and do that, I then need to take like a recovery – either a half day or just a few hours of just being completely on my own and shutting down just yeah. to bounce back again. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it is, it's a, you know, emotional, it's, it's an emotional thing to do it, uh, you know, for long periods. So you may, and you must've developed extremely thick skin over the years doing this time and again, and mm. probably having your own failures, I'm sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. You learn who to listen to and and whose opinion to give a shit about. Absolutely. (laughs) Now I'd love to know what would be your number one confidence tip? My number one tip is to, um, is to understand you're going to fail a lot when you're going, when you're on the path to trying to achieve pretty much anything that's hard to achieve. Uh, and those failures are opportunities to learn and they're opportunities to grow. And you've just got to see them as that. And you've got to treat them as that and you'll you'll always be fine if you can do that. I love that. I think a lot of people kind of sometimes see those things as a sign that they shouldn't be doing that thing. No. Yeah. But mm. you've got to just ignore it's, that. It's normal. It's totally normal. Just, yeah, keep at it. Now, is there a book that you've read that's really stood out for you or helped you or even a quote that you love that's helped you on your way? I think um, a book I read which kind of stuck with me for a while was wild by Cheryl Strayed. Ah. I think that, yeah, and it's for people who haven't read it, basically this lady loses her mother and loses, becomes a, a, a drug addict really and be, loses her way and decides to walk the Pacific Crest Trail for four months. And I think that's just a good story about finding uh, your, your anchors and your mooring again after facing a lot of setbacks and a lot of traumas, which happens to everyone in life. It's going to happen to you at some point. So that to me was a really good one for hope and and confidence, I think. Yeah, I love that book and I'll link to that in the Mm. show notes as well. What Mm. do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome or goal attached to it? I actually, I love surfing. I love being out with my mates in the surf and uh, 
it, to me, it's just do time run. I don't think of anything and it's a bit of fitness and it's uh, always good fun. And I've done a bit less of it actually since being in Melbourne, but uh, one day I'll get back to the coast yeah. and it'll be uh, back on again. You'll get back there. And as we know, like the confidence journey, it's not like a one and done tick a box. It's something you have to work on. And as you set new goals that are out of your comfort zone, you have to develop more of it. It's like a callus. So I'd love to know what you're working on right now in your confidence journey to take you to where you next want to be in life. I'm definitely trying to get the, I'm definitely trying to get the, entire the reason i do public speaking is to try and try and help people that that face the same kind of setbacks and issues that i had and i I know this is related to your purpose as well but for me it's not just having a keynote it's trying to have a book as well and an online course that someone could use to try and drive real changes in their life and hopefully help them not just at work that's not as important to me but just in life uh, to try and kind of be a better version of themselves and be there for their family and overcome any issues they've had. That's kind of the big thing that I'm interested in doing. That's a good goal. And there's so many things that can come off that. So it's exciting. That is a beautiful goal to have. And um, I want to thank you for putting so much of yourself on the line to put this book out into the world. It is a hugely inspiring read. And I know that it would have taken a lot out of you to do it. So thank you so much for that. And I would love to see you speak one day in person. So I hope you come to Brisbane soon. Uh, we'll we'll absolutely pack the car and I'll get uh, Sam and Harry up there as well. Yes. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have a sit down. Do it. Do it. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.